guys. We turned out okay. The Modern Parents Guide to Old School Parenting. I want to hang upside down from the swing set. Welcome to We Turned Out Okay with host Karen Locke Cole. I want to climb to the top of that tree. And now, here's your host, Karen Locke Cole. Welcome to the We Turned Out Okay podcast, where it's all about changing our kids' behavior for the better, feeling good inside, and truly enjoying family time. Today, I have got a great guest for you. She is a mom of three and five-year-old boys, a documentary photographer, and the creator of the Books for Littles website, booksforlittles.com, where she, which she started to, quote, promote diversity in gender constructs, race and disability and wealth inequality. And I just, we'll get, we'll get much more into that. That's a, that's a lot of things to deconstruct, but we will. Um, if you listened to We Turned Out Okay back in the fall, you may remember today's guest as the woman behind the brilliant strategy that we can all use to teach our kids about how to be neither predators nor victims of sexual abuse. It was episode 196, and I linked to it in today's show notes. When I invited my guest on the show and shared that listeners requested her advice on books about helping kids with issues like autism and same-sex marriage and books in which the princess isn't helpless and needing to be rescued, here is what my guest wrote back. She wrote, I think the best way to help readers is not just to list books that tell a few select stories on princesses and gay dads, but to discuss a bit what to look for on a broader scope, how to light that curiosity in kids and give parents some much-needed breathing space and guidance so they can relax. I get goosebumps because I, reading that back, I get goosebumps because I knew then what a fantastic conversation this would be today when we got to get together. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome today's guest, Asia Ray of Books for Littles. Welcome, Asia. Hello, what a nice intro. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. I like, I like my guests to feel really special. And um, you are a, a very special person to have on the show. I, I think it's so cool. And we even we we were already getting the benefit of your ideas before you even came on. Yeah, <laughs> which that's really neat, too. Um, we have a mutual friend named Amanda. And I, you know, I, I won't I will just use first names because I, I didn't you know, she doesn't know she's going to be mentioned on today's podcast. But um, when I asked on my Facebook page, one of one a listener to this show asked me, how can I make it so that my two year old son like doesn't become a sexual predator when he grows up? What can I do? And I, I asked that on my Facebook page and, and people had some really great responses. But I remember Amanda referenced your Facebook page books for littles. And, um, and she referenced your your response to that as being a really, really great one. Not to put you on the spot, because I know it was quite a while ago, but can you can you share a little bit about like, what would you say to a parent who is saying, I want to protect my kids from from either becoming victims of or becoming sexual predators? Um, so I think that we need to kind of back up and look at instead of just teaching them a bunch of things to say and a procedure to to move forward, but really look at the way that we look at what we expect of kids, and right now we have this boys will be boys and girls are victims mentality, mm-hmm. um, and I think it it's a broader discussion that we need to have where there's this issue of male toxicity and consent where we look, and also of ageism, where we look at children as almost like these little pets that we have. We're allowed to pick them up and tickle them without their, their consent, but it's okay because we don't mean anything dangerous for them. Mm-hmm. 
but they're going to carry that over as grown up. You know, growing up as a little girl, my uncles would tickle me and I'd be like, no, stop. And because they knew that they were safe, they thought it was okay to just keep pushing on that. You know, like you have to give your uncles and aunts kisses and that yep. kind of thing. Yep. But then it's not like you just suddenly something snaps when you're 18. You're like, okay, now it's okay for me to say no. Like, no, that's what you've been taught your entire life. Yeah. So on one hand, we're teaching little girls especially, sometimes little boys, but little girls especially, that they don't have the right to say what happens to their own body. And then we're teaching our boys that, you know, boys will be boys, they just can't control themselves. And, you know, they get all this messaging when they're teenagers where they're told that, you know, they watch these romantic movies and they're like, the, the guy who keeps pushing and follow, what is it like that? I haven't watched this movie, but like The Notebook or something. Or I haven't either. Just this guy like harassing a woman until she finally gives in. Oh my gosh. So, so we and, then, teach- and then she has like Stockholm Syndrome. So she's like, yeah. fine. <laughs> so, and, and I grew up with this too. I thought, you know, like if I pursue a guy long enough, he'll be won over by my my romantic gestures and I have to admit like we're we're all a part of this this isn't something that is only boys and only girls mm-hmm. we think that this is the idea of a proper relationship that we think that we're going to win someone over but we forget like these are actually people who feel a little bit skeeved out by our actions so what we have to do is from a very early age train them what we expect of them as adults not what we expect of them as kids and then we say that they have to change when they're adults Um, Mm -hmm. This is just an an ageist premise or an adultism kind of thing where we expect a certain level of innocence and going along with things as children, and then we expect them to kind of flip over and suddenly become adults. But it doesn't work like that. We have to set our intentions and set what we expect of them while they're young. And I think a lot of people don't realize that kids are actually fully autonomous individuals. They're not adults in construction. They're actually children. They're human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, So we approach that you know that terms of parenting and, and i think amanda has the same kind of idea she's she's a good family friend mm-hmm. uh, and our kids have been you know our our partners grew up together and our kids have been growing up together so we ha- we share a lot of the same values so oh, cool yeah and i think the the brilliant strategy that came out of that if we could just you know distill it into a, into a sentence or two was if your if if you or your kids are you know tickling on the couch or something like that. And and one of the kids says, no, stop. Anything that indicates like, I want this to end. We must A, immediately stop. Mm-hmm. And B, immediately teach the other kid to immediately stop. So if they're doing it to each other. And you know, this came up in our house a long, long time ago. Like when our guys were, I have teenagers, but when they were like, say, eight and four, and they used to, you know, horse around and tickle and stuff like that. Um, I can remember there, we went through a series of, I don't know, months probably, where one of them would be like, no, stop, haha, but he wouldn't really mean it. He would be mm-hmm. using that to encourage the other one to keep going. And my husband was like, oh, we can't have this. Like, you guys have to only say no when you actually want this to stop, because otherwise you're giving the other the other kid mixed messages, and that's really yep. scary and bad. And, and um, so we've kind of you know, for the last decade or so, we've, we've been living with that. And it really caused me to think back on like all the times when I was a kid and I was about to pee my pants and my uncle would not stop, you know, yep. wouldn't stop tickling or, or, or hugging too hard or something like that. And, um, I love how you talk about, we need to, um, we need to think of them like they're going to be like, they're not always going to be innocent, tiny children that, that, you know, there's going to come a time when that when they are 
going to be the grown up who's making the decisions. I know that's really hard to imagine <laughs> for a lot of people listening, but but um, it, it, we're training them now for that. And and to be able to put the simple words no or no thank you or stop, because um, a lot of times it'll happen at like family big family gatherings there'll be this sort of like but you have to eat my lasagna like I'll yep. feel so terrible if you don't eat this whatever and um and to teach a kid to say oh no thank you is is so so valuable yeah and I think that that kind of speaks to what we're doing at books for littles which is um pretty much the the main mission which is to raise world-changing kind and brilliant luminaries like the this next generation of people who are going to be the leaders of our future, or even, you know, just this mass of do-goodery people. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not thinking about, like, I mean, it, it boils down to what your values are. Like, some people, they want their kids to grow up and make a billion dollars. That's not really our personal idea of success. Mm-hmm. Our personal idea of success is not necessarily a college graduate. It is a person who is kind and thinks of others and considers all of the humans I don't know, animals, everything in the world, kind of a part of the family as opposed to just our tribe taking care of ourselves, taking care of our family only. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we need this because right now we have a lot of our closed off little tribes like us and them. And, you know, as far as like political divides, as far as identity and racial divides. So if we're thinking in more of an us mentality of like a growth mindset, then we're going to have a lot easier time taking care of ourselves as a like a human colossus Mm -hmm. so if we look at our children as the future leaders as opposed to our children as the future i don't know workers or something like that Mm -hmm. it's going to change what we decide to do what we decide to read for bedtime stories how we decide to talk at the dinner table you know that kind of thing oh yeah all that is so incredibly true there's there's tons to talk about on the topic of books and little kids and um I'm so excited that we have this time to dive into it today. And I feel like it's never going to be enough. (laughs) But I wanted to start um, getting into books. I wanted to really start by asking, what part in your upbringing did books play? So I was raised by a single mother. Mm -hmm. um, And we did not have much access to books. She was she was dyslexic. So she um, always had a hard time reading when she was little. Um, And she had a hard time reading to me, but she still you know, worked through that. And you could kind of tell this was really important to her. She made sure to have an entire bookshelf, which I mean, compared to today's kids wasn't much, but she had an entire bookshelf for me since I was very little. Awesome. And people would say, why do you have all these books if she can't read them? And she's like, because she'll learn how to read them. And and having those books there and knowing that that is, that is something that takes up space that is of value to her. That's the way that I was raised. At the same time, because she was a single mother working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week, and I didn't have access to a library, I didn't, we didn't have much money, so I didn't have access to unlimited reading. Mm-hmm. Books were a scarce resource for me. Um, I went to the library once when I was eight, and I tried to get a library book, and they were like, they just wouldn't give me a library card because they don't just give library cards to children without adults. Mm-hmm. So for me, every time I go to the library, I feel like I'm getting away with something. <laughs> <laughs> I go in there, and I have this enormous, like, rolly cart shopping bag, and I take out, you know, 50 to 100 books, and I always feel like someone's going to pull me aside and be like, you can't do that. So I feel like <laughs> I'm getting away with something. Um, and it's just, you know, it's so much fun, and I realized that, by doing this thing, I've, I've been taking out children's books since I was pregnant because I wanted to like build up this, this ideal library for my kids. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I've, with 
my abilities for hyperfocus because I'm autistic. Um, with my abilities for hyperfocus, I'm able to read and evaluate and look at books in a whole different way than other people do. And when a friend of mine, I don't know, like four years ago, posted, you know, a, a book that her child is liking on Facebook, I was like, oh, we could start a group for this. Like, we could actually discuss this. Can, does someone else want to nerd out on books with me? Um, and then I quickly realized that no one is as much of a nerd as I am. So, <laughs> so it just kind of, it kind of became the Asia ratio fairly quickly. Um, but I realized that this is something that I naturally do well. And the, I've been finding that, that, that set aside time for story time is a time when I can give my undivided attention to kids. Like I'm not trying to wash dishes. I'm not trying to get some work done. I'm not trying to like shovel them out, out the door so I can do something else. Yep. And it opens up discussion in a way that's way easier when we're both looking at the pages of an open book and we're reading something and we're discussing it way easier than if we try and bring something up like during dinner. Yeah. It's a facilitator. So, you know, a lot of parents are feeling overwhelmed and they're struggling for time and they're managing home and work and social obligations and all these, this terrible news on the internet and having that, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, whatever of daily story time kind of breaks it down and it lets people build a wall around that sacred space. Mm-hmm. And then being able to read those books, they're like, and you can choose what you're, you're dealing with, you know, school shootings. And you're like, how am I going to deal with this? I don't know how to start. It's way too scary. And I found that just by, you know, getting the right book, opening up that discussion, it becomes way less scary. So it's basically this free toolbox for parents that are feeling so overwhelmed. And the issue is just you need to know what books to get because not everyone has time to read 100 books a week. And you also need to know what to say and how to discuss these things and how to identify the invisible bigotry that's built into so many of the books that we read and we don't realize that's doing so much harm. Yeah. Um, So that's what we're kind of what this has grown into. This has grown into from a, a group where I was kind of subversively inserting books about trucks with only females in them yep. and stories that happen to be diverse, kind of hoping to, to include people who are a little bit more fragile into this, this idea of diversity into something that's a lot more political and a lot more overtly um, smashing the hierarchy, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, we, there, you just, so many things that you just talked about, I've got questions about. <laughs> um, and I really want to, I want to dig into a lot of those different subjects. Um, and I, I, you know, I've, I've got them written down. So like, I, I know what I want to say. But um, while you talked about that shelf of books that your mom had in your home that were reserved for you, I was, I wondered if you could, did you have any favorites? Did you have any that you returned to again and again? And were they, were they books that your mom was sort of expecting you to read as you got older? Were they picture books? Were they a mix? Like, I'm so curious about that shelf. <laughs> so what's funny is that my mom, because she was not a big reader, like she always loved Dr. Seuss books when she was young, but she was one of 10. So she didn't have a lot of access to literature. Um, and of course, back in the 80s, children's books were kind of garbage. Um, so yeah. I think honestly, we had so little money. I think she just picked out whatever she could afford, like literally would just go to the store and be like, this is this looks cute and this looks safe. So it didn't really matter what books were on the shelf. Um, there are very few that I actually got and are worth rereading to my kids. Like mm-hmm. um, there's one about like a Disney golden book about a, a dead grandpa bunny or something. And like it was, it has nostalgic meaning to me, but it means basically nothing in the wider terms of like <laughs> teaching them something. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like, and if I ran the circus by Dr. Such, which is one of his few books that is a little bit less racist than others. Um so, like, 
there's the ones that I really like are the ones that touch your emotions, I guess, and give you this sense of um, frivolity and adventure and living above just day-to-day boring stuff. Mm -hmm. So, and I guess that does, you know, tap into the different, I have, you know, uh, several different categories of books that I try and touch base with um, frequently. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it, it wasn't any one particular book. It's more of just that the books were there and I knew that that was a sacred thing that we should really that really took that up time share. and effort. Yeah. Um, and then once I was able to read on my own, uh, I didn't learn how to read until very, very late because I had some learning disabilities. But once I was able to read on my own, that was a really good way of exploring social situations because, you know, as an autistic kid, I didn't have many friends. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a, a really good resource for me that was not scary and terrifying and didn't have a lot of backlash socially for me to, to read about to do that. And I want, well, I, I really do want to talk about um, your experience as an autistic person growing up and, uh, and some stuff like that. But um, what you just said is making me wonder, like, did you find that, that one of the great things about books is that the, you know, the, the end is always the same. You know what I mean? Like you can go through a book and, and you can, you can experience the excitement of like, what's going to happen here. And then, you get to the end and you know what's going to happen. Like we talk a lot about how kids love repeating books or movies or whatever because they can experience that, but they know it's safe. They know that there's an end that they're going to, you know, be okay with kind of a thing. Did you find that as a kid? That, that... Um, I actually didn't, um, but I do, I do agree with that. I do agree on, I think it's better to read one book a hundred times and really unpack that book than it is to read a hundred different books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I do agree with that. And there is so little that kids can control. So having yes. predictable things yep. is really, really comforting. Yeah. Yep. No one is going to change the end of that story. Like it's always yeah. there for them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, so what was it like growing up? I mean, I, as a person who is not autistic, I guess, I'm so curious about if you could talk about um, what that was like. To ha- when did you find out that you were autistic or have you always known it? I mean, like, how has that kind of influenced your 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 life, you know? Um, so I didn't learn that I was autistic until I was pregnant with my first son. So I was 29 years old. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, and I hear this over and over with all of the other people I meet who weren't diagnosed until later in life, where they go through life where everyone just constantly tells them they're weird, they're offbeat, there's something a little strange. And sometimes they'll say, usually those are the people who like you who are saying it in a positive way, Mm -hmm. but the people who are more socially adept, they just find there's something wrong with you that just rubs them the wrong way. So there's... When we say that autism is, spec- is a spectrum, we don't mean a linear spectrum from very autistic to not very autistic. We mean a multidimensional spectrum. So some of us are non-speaking. So we don't speak English. We use, you know, we use uh, visual paths or other verbalizations or something like that. And those are the people that people tend to call low functioning, which is a very ableist term. Mm. Um, but those people are also um, better socially than I am, or they might have a, bil- a better time transitioning to a different task than I do. Mm-hmm. So whereas I have a tr- tough time transitioning to another task, I have s- some sensory issues, I have some trouble breaking away from my routine, but I can speak eloquently and I'm what's called hyperlexic and I have been since I was little where I could, you know, speak eloquently from a very, very young age. Mm -hmm. So someone would call me high functioning, even though I find it remarkably difficult to leave the house, but they might call someone who's non-speaking low functioning, Mm -hmm. um, even though they can do so many things that I can't do. So that's why that high functioning, low functioning binary does not work and it's actually harmful to us because... 
I might have an easier time getting a job, but they might, I might have a harder time keeping a job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about being a hyperlexic autistic is that you don't get diagnosed. And especially if you're a girl, you don't get diagnosed. If you're a person of color, you don't get diagnosed because a lot of my, you know, what people would call weird tendencies, people would attribute to my gender, people would attribute to my race. They'd be like, oh, that's a Chinese thing. Oh and that's goodness. kind of nonsense. <laughs> so, um, so a lot of women, especially people of color and especially women, um, anyone who deviates from basically being that white male that everyone sees on TV when we have fake autistic characters mm-hmm. um, tend to be diagnosed much, much later. So I didn't find out that I was autistic until I was pregnant. And what happened when I, when I realized this and when I finally accepted this was that I realized, oh, it's not just that I'm a terrible person and I'm a jerk. There's actually something that I can't do that other people can do easily without thinking about it. And mm-hmm. some of the things that it takes me, like I'm not lazy, it's just remarkably hard for me to do some things mm-hmm. and I need a lot of um, a lot of downtime to kind of recover from that. Say so yeah. like, you know, I need a week to recover from a party and I need two weeks to prepare for going to a party. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's one of the things that became a lot easier is that you start to recognize your weaknesses. So that way you can kind of mitigate them. And you also start to recognize your strengths. And I realized a lot of things that come super easy to me, uh, holistic, meaning non-autistic people, they just Mm -hmm. can't do. Um, and so now that I actually know about being autistic, I can focus on those strengths. So, you know, starting a photography business and starting a, starting books for littles, that kind of thing. I realized no one can kind of hyper-focus on children's books the way that I can. No yeah. one can take the kinds of photos that I can. Yeah. So that's been really helpful. It's like a, you've identified your superpowers. Yeah, basically. Much. So I think this is so interesting. Um, I, in the fall, got to interview Jocelyn Jackson, who is a uh, a New York Times bestselling uh, author of, of a bunch of fiction books. And the one that I the one that I read that moved me to, to contact her was called the, my gosh, the almost sisters. That's what it was called. And, um, in our, I, so it's this fabulous book about the South and it's, it's set in modern day times. And, um, it's the main character in this book is a woman who is a graphic design. She's a comic book artist. Like she's a comic book writer and she, um, her name is Leia, <laughs> just like Princess Leia, and she's totally into science fiction, all that kind of stuff. And she is a white woman, and she hooks up with a uh, with a black guy at a conference, and um, all was well. And then she discovered that she was pregnant, and she doesn't even know who this guy is. She doesn't even know his name or anything about him. And um, and the story is a just that unfolds within this other story, and it, it what happens is just so cool because you start to see. She is a, a a white woman of privilege in the South, and she starts to realize that, and to try to figure out, um, you know, what 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 that's going to mean for her child. And I don't mean to like get into this book <laughs> quite so much, but it's such a great book, and everybody should read it. But I was like, I got to have Jocelyn Jackson on the show just because of the of the the kind of racial tensions that it brings up, and and um, you know, and it in this world where we sort of have this tendency to feel like all stories that have to do with that are going to end badly. Like people just sort of think, Oh my gosh, it's all so terrible. Right. What can we do about this? Well, well, Jocelyn Jackson in this book has a a kind of a a pretty great idea for a solution. And, and um, so I wanted her on the show to talk about all that. And then she comes on the show and 
the first thing she says to me is, I, I learned empathy when I had my first child. I am an autistic person who, oh, cool. who did not, uh, yeah, who did not, um, she said, I didn't have a lot of empathy before. And she was always a writer. So she would like, she would, you know, be in classes, uh, you know, working towards her PhD and stuff like that. And people would say, you know what? I just don't like these main characters. Like, I just don't like these people that you're writing about. And she was like, she, once she sort of got some perspective, I guess, and she could say, oh, well, that's probably why, because, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of empathy and neither did the characters that I wrote because I didn't, she didn't just didn't understand empathy. And, and yet she's so amazing at so many other things. Um, and I, I came out of that conversation feeling like the reason that she could write these books so incredibly well is because of, of the, you know, some of the, some of her unique capabilities and talents and I mean part of that is she is who she is and who she is as an autistic person you know yeah I, I would be interested to speak on, with her about how she defines empathy because there is this myth that's floating around where autistic people don't have empathy um, and then there's there's a disambiguation between intellectual empathy and um I guess, inborn empathy. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of people ask, like, what's the difference between a sociopath and an autistic person? Um, so I can definitely see how that would be a challenge for her. And it's interesting, but I, I am a little bit nervous about that conversation about not having empathy because that's not true. Like autistic people aren't just not born with empathy. We just don't physically pick it up and or visually pick it up off people's faces and feel it internally based on facial mm -hmm. expressions, but we do feel empathy. Yeah. No. So I, um, yeah. I want I'm going to link to that I don't know the number but it's it's uh I will link to it in the show notes um and I, and she she self-identified as as quote not having a lot of empathy and um but you know it was clearly there and and it needed to be you know she just kind of needed to yeah it's communicated it differently bit. it's yeah. mostly a communication yeah. issue uh, and I don't again I I, I feel funny because I don't want to you know that conversation was what it was and she views you know, she has got her own worldview and I feel like I can't bring her into the conversation without actually bringing her in here. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean, but, um, but I just think it's really interesting. And also you guys are the only two people on my show that I can think of and remember who have names that are spelled unlike they're pronounced. Her, her name is spelled. <laughs> I wonder if we both have dyslexic moms. I know. I don't know. This is so interesting. Her name is, is pronounced Jocelyn and spelled J-O-S-H-I-L-Y-N. And Asia, your name is pronounced Asia, and it's A-S-H-I-A. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Well, the reason my name looks like that is because my mom is dyslexic and an artist. So she she spelled it out on paper, and she loved the way that it peaks in the middle with a lowercase h. Yep, yep. Um, which which I has been too. a constant source of consternation for me since I was a oh, small child. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Um, <laughs> but, and you know, I think she would say the same thing. She was like, great, thanks. Yeah. Like whatever, I'll just answer to everything. I usually, I'm, I'm used to answering to like 20 different permutations of my name. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so just uh, changing the subject a little bit, um, you have, you have shared that, you know, that you, your mom was single. You didn't have a lot of like financial type resources growing up, but you've, you've also shared that your boys are growing up in a different world than you inhabited. That's not their circumstances, right? Yeah, and this is by design. Um, my partner, like, basically, it, we're not we're not like a romantic couple. It was I I met him. He was the only person who ever made a convincing, logical argument and 
and you know, hearing that, I'm like, I oh no, I have to breed with this guy because we're gonna make genius babies. <laughs> because you know, back in college, I thought the best way for my children to survive is to make them brilliant. I didn't realize that there's anything else that can get you anywhere because that's what my mom taught me. She's like, get into college. I was the first, you know, she she hadn't graduated high school, so like me graduating college was a really big deal. She's like, get into college work really hard and you'll be successful and you won't end up like me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, okay, when my children are born, they have to be brilliant because that's really the only way that they're going to end up, you know, never running out of food and they're never going to face the hardships that we faced. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I picked this guy because um, he, he was, he had come from a supportive, wonderful family and I absolutely adore my in-laws. And he was brilliant and he seemed like he would be a safe a safe person to raise a family with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also, and this is, you know, this is racist. This is, I was cognizant of the fact that if my children like me were visibly multiracial, they were going to have a harder time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's not like I was picking spouses based on race, but I went to engineering school. Basically everyone was white. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, my kids will be safe with him. And, you know, it worked out perfectly. It's, it's not that he's not a hard worker and he's not brilliant, but things are handed to my husband that are not handed to other people who have the same qualifications, who are women, who are transgender, who are people of color. He mm-hmm. just, he, he gets credit for his own work in ways that other people do not. So we have had the opportunity and we've worked hard to take advantage of these opportunities, but we've had opportunities that other people have not. Mm -hmm. So we live in one of the wealthiest suburbs in the world. We have access to an amazing public school system. My sons are white presenting. They're only a quarter Chinese Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, very small amounts of everything else, but they, they look very white Mm-hmm. They're tall. They're, I think, the handsomest children in the world. <laughs> they're they're not physically disabled, um, and it's not my place to discuss my children's neurostatus. But I, they do have, you know, some challenges in terms of other things. But visible, they they have no they have no visible d- disabilities, mm-hmm. and they have all of this power. And I realized when I was pregnant with this boy, I was like, okay, I am so glad I do not have to worry about my child ever being attacked walking home mm, in the dark like yeah. I, i'm not saying male rape isn't a thing but it's statistically it's less of a real. yeah it's less of a worry um so i'm like i can breathe so much easier knowing that they're so they never have to be afraid like i have to be afraid mm-hmm. like i can't go running in the dark they can do whatever they want they can you know just walk around and then i realized you know when my first was a very young infant that oh crap they um they they can be the bad guys. Like they can do damage. And the worst part is they can do damage without even thinking about it. Like when you have such a big, big footstep, you have to be so more, so much more cautious and they're not forced to learn the impacts of racism and the impacts of sexism because they'll never have to face it on a day to day basis, the way that the rest of us do. So when my sons were very young, I had to teach them that, you guys are basically born into privilege and luck that you don't necessarily deserve. And it is your job to stay constantly, constantly, constantly aware of that and think about every single impact of everything you do. And it's going to be exhausting, but it's way less exhausting than having to fight your way up the ladder for every single thing that you have. 
Um, so we try and be very cognizant of that. And I think it's, it is our duty as people with way more privilege than other people to teach our sons that. And it's not fair to argue that only girls should teach, only parents of girls should teach their kids not to be raped. It should be my job as a parent of sons oh boy. to teach them not to rape people. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I, we feel exactly the same way. Um, and, and I, you know, it's something I've overtly thought about ever since my husband said, wait a minute, if one of you is saying no, the other yeah. one has to stop. You, you have yeah. to mean this and you have to, you know, say what you mean. And, um, and yet I, I also feel like not, I guess, and yet was wrong. Cause what I really wanted to do was kind of segue back into like, what books are you reading with them to reinforce that? But also, um, you know what, before we get into books, I guess I'm wondering, like, if we're teaching our kids to sort of continually uh, think about, how can I say this? I, I I don't want this to come out the wrong way because I know exactly what you're, like, I, I feel very aligned with you, Asia, in, in this. But I also worry, so when, when, my, when I had my 13-year-old on the show, um, which was last Halloween, I'll link to that one as well. That was a pretty great conversation. And... Um, he called me out on something and what he called me out on was me being a Pollyanna. Like I, I talk a lot about how in order for me to do the positive work that I do, I have to tune out a lot of the negatives. I have to tune out the things that I cannot, like I can only go so deeply into a story about a school shooting or, uh, you know, a a, a horrible crime or a, a policy that turns my stomach or whatever before I have to stop because if I don't stop I will end up curled on the floor in a fetal position with my thumb in my mouth going like I can't even live in this world and and I guess I bring that because Jay was like but you're so Pollyannish and I was like well I don't really see it that way I see it that I know that those things exist and what I do I try to do to help those situations but I have to do it in my own way and and I guess I'm thinking about it now because if we teach our, if we teach our sons, you know, because I have two uh, boys as well, if we teach them to think every moment about their big footstep, or their big footprint, and and who are they, uh, you know, I, I guess. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So there's a couple of issues with that. So I'm used to that um, as an autistic person who passes as non-autistic. Mm-hmm. I was raised from a very young age um, to always, always, always stay 14 steps ahead of people, like take into consideration 15 different ways that someone could construe what I say before I speak. Mm -hmm. So, and that is something that I also have to do as a woman of color. That is also something I have to do as a woman when speaking to men. Let me just ask, were you taught that overtly? that's why I can pass. Okay. So my mom not understanding that I was autistic, she's like, you cannot she didn't say you can't be yourself, but she's like, you cannot be like this. You will not survive. And she was, you know, she's afraid. She has Mm -hmm. nothing other than, you know, this idea that she's raising this, this young girl who isn't white Mm -hmm. and she doesn't want me to be attacked. She doesn't want me to fail. And she's like, you cannot behave like this. You have to constantly think you have to look at people in the eye, no matter how uncomfortable and how painful it is. Mm -hmm. You have to do this and you have to do this. So for me, that's just life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's for a lot of people of color. That's just life. That is something that we have to do. And there's this, um, I actually saw a speech by someone 
uh, named Robin Bernstein recently, who wrote Racial Innocence, Performing American Childhood from Slavery to Civil Rights recently. Um, and she did a talk on childhood innocence and what we, this ageist idea that we children are innocent and they deserve to be protected and they deserve to be basically oblivious. Children have a right to obliviousness, mm-hmm. but we only expect that of white children. Only mm-hmm. white children have the right to be oblivious. Black children have to learn about police violence and they have to learn about all this other stuff because otherwise they'll be killed. Disabled children have to learn about how to pass and how to navigate a a world that's not built for them because otherwise they will be killed. So that is something that I expect of my children because they need it to survive Mm -hmm. and also because every other child needs it to survive. On that other hand, um, you mentioned something about, you know, getting, getting caught up in despair when all you hear is bad news. Yep. There is a way to approach something like school shootings where, you know, obviously everyone wants to hide under the covers and just kind of cry. Mm -hmm. Like when when you just look at what's happening, how little control we as an individual have over that situation. But there's this, you know, if you picture this Venn diagram, you have this idea of the importance. We We need to understand systemic racism in this country. We need to understand white male entitlement and gun violence in this country. That is very important. But a lot of parents wait until it's an actual physical danger for their own children to mm-hmm. discuss it. Like, mm-hmm. um, there was a black couple who were saying they didn't introduce the concept of systemic racism and police brutality until their child learned how to drive because they, he needed to know about driving while black. Waiting to teach a black male about systemic racism until he's 16 is dangerous. Yeah. He could have he been killed if he didn't know that you can't, that he had... Other things are expected of him yeah, because yeah. of his race. Yeah. Um, so there's that this in, issue of urgency. Uh, white, non-disabled male kids, there's no urgency for them to learn about this. It's important, but parents are like, we can, we can wait because it's uncomfortable. No one wants to have that conversation. But what we're missing is that key element of power. So if you're looking at that Venn diagram of urgency, knowledge, and power, mm-hmm. parents don't understand that they have power and they don't know how to give their children power. Um, so one of the things that we do is you need to have the language of identifying bigotry. You need to have the language of identifying when you're having, when something's unfair and you need to have the language of what small steps you can take at an age appropriate level. Um, so for parents, they feel that urgency sometimes maybe they feel the importance, but the power comes from having the right tools to discuss things with them. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying for a child who has never learned about death or violence or discrimination to suddenly open a book and start talking about um, school shootings. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that there's a step-by-step process by which parents can slowly onboard their kids to that. So instead of their children feeling despair, their children feel this and you know, it, it, it is an uncomfortable discussion and they should feel uncomfortable. No one should feel comfortable with the idea of kids getting shot in school, mm-hmm. but they can also feel empowered to do something about it and they can feel empowered to protect themselves and more importantly, em- empowered to protect their friends and to change the world for the better. I and that. I think that's something that's missing in that conversation where people want to protect their children's innocence, AKA obliviousness. Yeah. Yeah. What we really need to do is we need to help our kids you know, uh, not to stand up for themselves, but, but to, to be protectors of everybody. Like if we protect them, we, we take away the, the opportunity for them to, to, to stand in their own beliefs and say like, well, this is not right. This is not fair. This is wrong. I need to help this person. 
Yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. And I use kindness very intentionally for books for littles. We have kindness, kind and brilliant luminaries. I'm not talking about kindness as in niceness as in, I mean, everyone should hold the door for each other. That should be baseline. I'm talking about kindness as in courage and because it takes courage to be truly kind. You Mm -hmm. need to actually, you need to actually be willing to have some people disagree with you. Um, and you need to be able to stand up and be an upstander even when it's not comfortable. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at this. Like, no, (laughs) I I have the same exact feelings. And I also feel like I have not done that every time when I should have, but you know, but you keep trying. (laughs) Yeah. You just keep trying. The the point is to grow. The point is not to be born knowing everything. The point is to just take that next small step every single, every single day. Yeah. So thinking you know, I'd love to, to, again, come back to books with this. So you have a three and five year old, uh, your, your boys are three and five, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. What, what sorts of books do you read with them? I mean, I guess I'd love to, uh, I, I almost, I'm tempted to segment it, right? But I don't know if you can. So. Oh, I can. There, okay. <laughs> I was gonna say there's like, there's so much though. There's, there's the idea of, um, you know, they're going to have privilege in a world that, that a lot of kids don't. And how do we protect those other people and, and, you know, bring them up with us and, how, uh, you know, how do we expose them to the idea of like, what to do in a school shooting? Or is that is that where you start? I guess I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the floor, Asia. <laughs> so I mean, because my kids are so young, it's hard for me to say like, here's how you're gonna do it perfectly. And your kids are gonna grow up to be awesome. Mm-hmm. I think if I wait until my kids are 20 to start giving people advice on this, I'm going to be irrelevant because our social structure is going to be completely yeah. different. No, my question is much more like, <laughs> but, what do you, yeah. what are you reading with them? You know, so, how do you bring this up? Yep. So right now I'm working on an issue of, you know, at one and a half, we started talking about sex and reproduction. Mm-hmm. And at two, we started talking about death. At three, we started talking about discrimination. At four, we started talking about the hierarchy, which is this hydra of systemic bigotry from sexism and ableism and racism and beyond. Mm-hmm. And now at five, with my older one, we're talking about violence. Part of this is I wait until I have a little bit of urgency, like my mom's dog is about to die. Let's talk about death. Mm-hmm. But I'm also testing this out on my on my second kid, and it seems to be at these ages they're able to grasp some some age appropriate level of these concepts. Um, but basically, we divide up these books into I don't know, like four or five different sections. There's explicitly educational. You know, you go to the library and you ask, um, "Where are your books on autism?" And your librarian will point you towards the books a bunch of books that are probably terrible, uh, a bunch like the autism section. Mm-hmm. So that's the one where you learn about, you're not necessarily autistic or you are autistic and you're learning about autism for the first time and it tells you, you know, what to expect, what are some um, personality commonalities between people who are autistic. And then you have, you know, those are didactic usually. It takes kind of an expert to work that into an engaging story. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we like to do is find those engaging stories where they stand alone as stories, but they also touch into kind of a humanistic idea of, of these, what is it like being a Sikh? What is it like being, being raised Jewish? What is it like being a black woman? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I call explicitly educational books. Those should be at a minimum. Um, you should, you know, for black history, we're, right now we're focusing on we have an entire blog post right now on the website called Black Women in History, where it goes between historical fiction, which are those engaging stories, but they also teach you about the U.S. history of racism in America against black people, mm-hmm. but then also books written by black women um, and black history, so black women in history. So those are explicitly educational books. 
Um, and that is something where you just kind of have to push people. Like, I know it's not urgent to learn about black history, but you got to do it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of use holidays and stuff like that to start triggering that and people getting an interest. And then you have what's empowering books. Like these are books about, um, like people who are disabled and they're fighting against a system that is not built for them. And they're not necessarily coming out on top, but you know, they're, they're making way and they're not just they're not just victims and they're not just people to be pitied and they're not just inspiration porn, Mm -hmm. which is like you watch it and uh, a disabled person do a regular thing and everyone gets so inspired. Mm -hmm. They're, they're actual people with agency and control. So the second version is empowering. And then you have validating, which is not necessarily made for everybody, but um, for instance, Spork, um, I can't remember who wrote it. The book Spork, when I read it as a multiracial person, it was hugely validating because no one writes about being multiracial. No one writes about how you can't claim either identity and both identities, both groups of people don't necessarily want you. Mm -hmm. That's a validating book, and that is very, very important for people who belong to marginalized identities. Um, And then you also have problematic books, like books where they actually are kind of building into that system of supremacy. And those require a lot of education and a lot of discussion and a lot of picking those apart. So that way you can see, you know, the way that Dr. Seuss used minstrels and blackface mm-hmm. and the way that he depicts Asian characters. And you pick that point part and you say, what's wrong with this? How is this problematic? And you guys kind of discuss that. And so, like, I'm just remembering in my education, uh, we talked a lot about when I was an undergrad, we talked a lot about Richard Scarry books, which are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, adorable and sweet, but also full of like cookie baking mama foxes yeah. and stuff. Like that. Yeah, and he's he's rewritten a lot of those, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's something where people are like, "What should I do with these books? Should I should I burn them?" I'm like, "No, don't burn them. Keep them. Discuss them. Talk like, about them. Exactly. Air, air it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Get into like what's you know why and and I love this too because you can because your kids can be thinking about the kids are always thinking so I I had so many thoughts as you were as you were going through those one is that um are empowering books could could we also think of empowering books as storybooks or are they all you know are they all a variety of storybooks I mean all of these should be storybooks yeah yeah um in a perfect world you don't have those garbage filler books where like it's like I am a Sikh and it's just like got like a picture from like the 70s yeah. of like a kid and like you see him going to church and it has no story there's no reason to connect yeah. no matter who who the child is reading it they should connect with the main character and there should be an overarching like a sense of common humanity in yeah. those stories yeah um the story quickest kid in Clarksville is a fantastic book for women's black history not because it focuses on, um, I can't remember the name of uh, the person she was focusing on, but it was about a little, it's historical fiction. It's focusing on a little girl who's facing um, bullying because of her her wealth status and because of her race and, and all this stuff. And then at the end, we see how this woman in history, this uh, marathon runner or Olympian, I think, inspires her and gives her hope for the future Mm -hmm. um and that is something every single child can connect with yeah um quickest kid in clarksville but i'm i'm linking to i'm linking to that i have so link to that but yeah we have and what you can actually link just to the main uh, black women in history book post because it's got all of these books in there yeah that's that sounds like a pretty great one as well um uh, we have got we should have one minute but i'm hopeful (laughs) asia that we can we can talk for a few more minutes would that be okay 
as as often my favorite conversations this happens in where um we can go a little bit longer because mm-hmm. inevitably we get to you know minute 55 and it's like oh god i don't want this conversation to end <laughs> um you this is again this is completely a departure from what i had thought we would talk about that's my other favorite kind of conversation and this has exactly happened like i've got a whole list of things that we haven't even we haven't even gotten into but what we have gotten into has been so much better so um very very cool uh you talk about the danger of actually there's two more things i really want to address one is the idea of age appropriateness because Mm -hmm. i think that's such an interesting one but also um you talk about boring books and and how they're dangerous and I love this idea and I would love for you to kind of get dig a little bit more into that if you would yeah okay so yeah that was my main my main things that I want to discuss were making hard topics easier and I I think we covered that like the slowly onboarding Um, so you can't discuss discrimination unless you understand the weight behind death and the weight behind violence and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but also reclaiming your time is the most important thing that I it's hard to discuss with people but we have so little time, especially as parents and even as educators and librarians and all the different people who deal with picture books and deal with children and yeah. are influencing children. We have so little time. We have so little resources. And there are so many books out there that are well-intentioned but completely oblivious. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that if you pick up a handful of books on disability at the library, most of them, if not all of them, are actively damaging to autistic people and the disability rights movement. Wow. So, you know, just, I mean, if you think back like 20 years ago about the way that they treated women, about the way that they treated people of color, and, and you realize that like we're not, it's not like we've hit an end goal where we're suddenly all aware of bigotry. Like, no, that's still baked into everything. Yeah. And unless an author is doing the work of actually consulting with or writing from their own experience, they're going to write from a center of whiteness and they're going to write from a center of white culture, male culture as supreme. Like Mm -hmm. that's basically white supremacy and it's systemic and it's not intentional. I think a lot of us don't realize that we are racist even though we don't want to be, even though we know racism is bad, yeah, but there's have... things that we do that perpetuate white supremacy. We, so... I, can I just interrupt for a quick moment to say, I was listening to an interview today and I, I really took something from it, which was that we all have biases mm-hmm. and, and they're, we grow, we, you know, they're there. And what we need to do is not act like we don't have them or pretend they're not there or be ashamed of them, but we need to be mindful of them so that we can say, okay, this is my bias. I need to look outside of it. Yeah, and, and we need to we need to really think about the fact that we need to disconnect this idea of a racist as a bad person mm-hmm. because I am racist, um, I am sexist, but that doesn't make me a bad person. It makes the things that I do it makes it means I was raised a certain way, and the things that I do are performed through a certain lens mm-hmm. because only through there can I actually move forward on dismantling that system. Um, so. In terms of reclaiming our time, so we have all of these books that publishers just churn out, and librarians don't have time or the resources to pre-screen books before they buy them, mm-hmm. particularly in school libraries and other libraries where they have a very small budget and a very small staff, and you know they're already overworked as it is. Support yeah. your public libraries, guys. Um, <laughs> Please. So, but the thing is that you know they, there's all this garbage books out there, and parents show up. They've got their kids running back and forth, especially if you've got you know a spirited kid like I do. They don't have time to read a hundred books on Valentine's Day, and pick the one that is you know empowering that, for females yeah. and that yeah. kind of thing. 
yeah, um, that most aligns with their values or what yeah, they're trying to teach. Yeah, most aligns with their values. Yep. And so you need to have trusted resources, and I'm totally plugging myself here, but you need to have people or, you know, resources. Like there's this resource called A Mighty Girl on the Internet, and everyone's always re- referencing it, and it drives me kind of bananas because all they do is they pull every single book with a female in it, regardless of whether or not that message is damaging to females. Oh, wow. So you've got a lot of books that say, like, oh, she's not like the other girls, meaning, you know, she's more like a boy. Yeah. And that's better. <laughs> yep, yep. And, like, that just, it pisses me off and it drives me nuts because we're, and parents aren't really thinking about how these books and these stories shape kids in these subliminal ways that they're not even going to remember, but yeah. really they're going to internalize that. Yeah. So they bring home books and they're doing the best that they can. They bring home cute books. They read them. They read, you know, Dr. Seuss. That used to be the gold standard. And you realize how terribly racist Dr. Seuss is. Mm-hmm. And the underlying message about how, like, the sneeches without the stars on their bellies are so miserable because they don't have stars on their bellies. And I'm like, well, you know what? As an Asian, I'm not miserable because I'm Asian and I'm not white. I'm miserable because we're erased from the media and because, you know, when we're shot and killed by police, everyone ignores it. So we have this system of people just obliviously writing books about autism, not having any idea about what autism is and actually building into stereotypes, building into stereotypes on Down syndrome, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And these books do damage. They're actively dangerous. And I don't want to scare parents and make them like afraid to read books, but we need to give parents the tools to actually read critically and understand these issues and give them language to discuss it. So when they come upon a surprise problematic thing where you know, you're watching Pinocchio and you've got, you know, these racist depictions of black coated clothes. Parents need to be able to discuss, oh, why did they do it that way? When was this made? What did they believe? How is that not okay? How should they have done it differently? Like people, parents just get sideswiped by this stuff and they, and they just don't know what to do. So they just kind of ignore it and they pretend it doesn't exist. So they need better tools for dealing with this Mm -hmm. and they need better examples. And we need to demand more of our publishing industry and of our authors and our illustrators. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I so just thinking about the word boring, it feels like there's a little bit more Oh yeah. To so that. and then there's the boring issue. So you're dealing with, you know, black history. Most books on black history are boring. They're so boring. Yeah. They've got like this muddy ash can look to them. Um, same thing like Eve Bunting is this amazing illustrator, but back in the nineties she used to pair with, I think I can't remember the illustrator she paired with, but the images are depressing. They're kind of painterly. They're bland. They look like something that should be hung in like an art history museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not engaging for kids. And if it's not engaging for kids, they're going to associate their boredom with the subject matter and the illustrations with the topic. Yeah. So, you know, you think back like our own educations on black history. I'm like, yeah, it has nothing to do with me. I'm not black. It's great that racism is over according to my white teachers. And this book, this topic is super boring to me because this book is super boring. Yeah, and yeah. you don't realize how much damage it does to have a boring story, a didactic story on these images that have very real impacts, um, these, these issues that have very real impacts. So boring stories and these didactic things and these subtle white supremacy things, they're actively dangerous to our kids. Mm-hmm. I agree. I really, really do. Um, okay, and then age appropriateness. I love what you say about age appropriateness, which is which is that. Well, I'll I'll let you talk about it. So so um, where is my just a quick. Uh, there it is. Okay. Um, 
I knew I had it written down somewhere. You share <laughs> that the main goal of Books for Littles, which is booksforlittles.com, is to sift through all the junk on the shelves and help overwhelmed parents who are already starved for time and energy find exactly the right books to help them have age-appropriate discussions with their kids. And you talk about how age-appropriateness is, it starts a lot earlier than, than parents generally think, yeah. right? So this is, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about this idea of implicit bias. It's, this is the bias that gets a well-meaning cop like a father who who's who's doesn't consider himself racist. He's a great cop. He's he's trying to do good things for the world. Implicit bias is that kind of animal instinct in the back of his brain that has taught him from watching the news and from reading the books that he's read and from seeing the movies that he's seen. And when he sees a black child on the street holding something, he immediately thinks that kid is up to no good, as opposed to seeing a white child on the street and thinking that's just a kid. Mm -hmm. So that implicit bias forms our subconscious. And when people don't realize, they're like, oh, you know, I raised my kids colorblind. They don't see color. And by not talking about color, you raise your kids racist. Mm-hmm. by not actively unpacking that and uh, not actively, you know, if your kids are watching the news, not actually pointing out, hey, did you notice that when they discuss this black person, they have a, a, a jail mugshot, and when they discuss this this white shooter, they have, like, a picture of him with his family? Mm-hmm. Like, they need to unpack that because from birth, our children are learning this implicit bias, and it's natural for us as humans to want to take care of those who look like us. Like, that's just, you know genetically taking you you support you know your your siblings and your nieces and nephews because your genes are more likely to be passed on that's perfectly natural but we're past that and we need to understand and we need to actively counter that issue um because just because someone looks like you doesn't mean that they have more of a right to your support and your assistance Mm -hmm. um so if we're going to fight implicit bias it has to be from birth Mm-hmm. And by that, I don't mean you're reading black history books on slavery to your six-month-old. I mean that the board books that you read should have a wide range of race and gender and ability. And I don't mean, like, token one female while the main character is a boy who is white. I mean, like, an actual mix. And it, there's really no excuse anymore for just this, like, everything is a white boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So No, you're absolutely you know, right. Yeah, so you know, you're picking up, and this is so easy if you start it s- small and simple, and the younger you start, the easier it is. So if you're starting with diverse board books, which is pictures of babies who aren't just all white, yep. and then you know, you're discussing sex and gender when your kids are one and a half, when they start discussing topics like this is a girl and this is a boy, and this is what girls do and this is what boys do, when you start actually unpacking those gender constructs, and you know, they will come up on their own with that kid is different from me and therefore they're not as good. And that's your opportunity to discuss, not, not lecture them, but to ask, why do you feel that way? Is that true? Like, um, my, my boy's step, step grandfather is black. And, you know, sometimes they see black people, you know, when they're two years old and they're like, I don't like that person because that person looks dirty. It's yeah, that's a super racist thing to say. And I am grateful that he said it during story time and not at the checkout counter at the grocery store. (laughs) So, you know, he's looking at that. I'm like, well, is Papa dirty? And he's like, no. And I'm like, so you understand that brown skin doesn't make you dirty. And that allows us to have that conversation in an age-appropriate, safe way yeah. in a place where I'm not just sideswiped by it. And the same thing happens when you're discussing death. Like, if you're discussing death with age-appropriate books meant for toddlers, it's way easier when something happens later on and all of a sudden you get a call 
that's not the time to discuss death with your children Mm -hmm. because you're, you're not going to be in the right mindset for that. And it's going to be too much. I mean, like your kids will be fine, but it's so much easier if you can just get ahead of it. Same thing with, you know, sex and death and violence and discrimination. So there are these ways to slowly, slowly onboard them. And I'm not saying that we have to like go into the horrific things that our country has done and the people in our country have done, but we can introduce the concept of slavery and we can introduce like, um, Brad Meltzer has a series of books called Ordinary People Change the World. Some of them are a little bit problematic, but for instance, I Am, Mar- I Am Martin Luther King is a really good book that, while not completely historically accurate, and while it doesn't detail all of the things that you need to know about to understand his legacy, it gets kids excited and it makes them feel empowered and it's appropriate for kids as young as three and a half. Mm-hmm. I, so, what you yeah. were, what you were, uh, saying about death is it made me think of it it was reminding me of um when mr hooper passed away on sesame street and they did not turn away from that yeah and instead what they did was they they had a, a just a scene that you know still makes me cry to think of where big bird who's the five-year-old on this you know he's the sort of like yeah. immature like uh he he plays the five-year-old and he he's like well where's mr hooper i have this thing i want to talk to him about and they're like well he died and and they don't they don't use euphemisms they they really they basically like they communicate in the in the least complex language what a kid would need to know they're answering big birds questions about this in such a way that that he understands that like you know he's he's gone and he's not coming back but we have our memories of him and and yeah I just god I love that so much and I feel like I mean we not just with death or you know not just with any of these really but like um to talk with kids and 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 read and tell stories about um all of these issues that that you know uh we're bringing up today to because kids kids see things I mean as adults it's really really difficult for us to get back to what a kid actually sees and actually thinks we have I have a whole slew one third of this podcast is called your child explained episodes because it's so different what kids think about things and how kids approach something is so completely different that we adults can be fearful that they will take the wrong message or that they will I don't know I mean you know that like if we teach them about sex that they're going to be sort of if we teach them about reproduction that they're going to be having babies at (laughs) 12 or something you know and and um and that's not the case. It's it, when when they have more information and when they, especially starting where, uh, one thing that I feel like you've mentioned a couple of times is starting where their questions are. So when a kid, you know, talking about this stuff all along in the sense of like, well, it's it's implicit in our lives. You know, we, we, uh, we, whatever, we read stories where there's lots of diversity and, and where it's not just, you know, a white man being the hero or whatever. But then, in their lives, they'll have questions like, like, you know, questions about, well, why does that person look dirty? And and you can, you can come back to it and you can say, you know how your, your grandpa has brown skin. Like, do you think he's dirty? Like you can, you can bring it onto their level and you can make it simple enough that you're not talking about school shootings, but you are answering their questions and helping them understand the real world in which they live and the complex and wonderful diversity that we have here in this real world. Yeah, and that that is very important to discuss. Not using euphemisms is a huge thing. Like, we started discussing sex and reproduction when my son was my oldest son was one and a half, and that has been so helpful because if you think about the way that men 
and women think about female anatomy, like we don't discuss it. It's a little bit, it's a little bit shameful. It's a little bit dirty. And we have all these ideas behind it because people are afraid to discuss it when our, their kids are young. Mm-hmm. So this is mad props to my, my mother-in-law, who is one of like a, a strong Mormon feminist that that's the household that my son, my partner grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was open and honest about sex and about female anatomy. And my husband does not hold all of those weird things that I hold on to and I've internalized because I, I was raised lapsed Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so this my by teaching my sons about female anatomy, about sex, about things like that, it is my duty so that way they're, you know, if they if they're interested in women, so that way they treat their their wives and their girlfriends with respect and not like they're disgusting and weird. Um, and it just makes it so much easier for those sideswipe questions. So because my son already has, we didn't go into it in detail, but he knows how babies are made. He knows how babies are born. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a test tube baby, but you know, like you can, the thing is like when he's like, wait, how does that get in there? I can just take a deep breath and then I can answer him clearly. And yep. like, he'll find a menstrual cup and be like, what is that? I'm like, okay. And it feels yeah. weird to me, but his response is always, oh, okay. Cool. Like, because it's just normal. It's there's nothing shameful about it. There's yeah. nothing weird about it. Yeah, it's only it's weird when we make it weird, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing. So, um, the I, I our time is really short, but I just the other thing that you're uh, that you were making me remember um, in this latter part of the conversation about age appropriateness is that kids. It has to do with how a kid understands whether they are a boy or a girl, and it's not about. Uh, it's not about private parts. Like we can say to a kid, oh, well, you're a boy because you have a penis, right? But that's not, a lot of times, that is not how kids identify as whether this person standing across from them is a boy or a girl. They don't see the private parts, right? So so they'll, I, if if you're a girl and the person standing across from you is wearing a dress and she has barrettes in her hair and she's wearing a necklace and she's wearing pink, universally pink and purple, I mean, it just makes me crazy. But anyway, that's how kids know whether they fit into this group or not, like internally, they'll, they'll sort of say to themselves, well, I'm not dressed like that. So I'm not a girl. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, I, I don't want to, I, you know, I don't want to sound luxury, um, for, for you listening. Um, I, I'm just thinking about that because a lot of times we will read something into it that isn't there. Like, uh, when I was a kid, so I, Apparently, I don't remember this, thank goodness, but I went through a phase of only wanting to wear pink and purple and dresses because that's what a girl wears. And if you see me now, I mean, like I <laughs> sometimes I'll put on a dress if it's if it's, you know, appropriate or fun or whatever. It's if it's what I want to do. But most of the time I'm like in, you know, sweats. <laughs> but yet I'm still a girl, you know, and um, it, it's just it, I guess the reason I'm thinking about it is because we can put these layers of you know ideas on our kids that aren't actually there it's like what and and that so the reason I'm bringing it all up is because there is this wonderful wonderful author um named Amy Herman who I talk about actually I talk about this book a lot I'm gonna get her on the show um it's called yeah so I've got the author's name it's Amy Herman it's called something like it's called some it's something oh it's called visual intelligence that's what it's called and it is about seeing things as they are actually there and what amy herman does is she uh she teaches 
police officers, um, first responders, people like that, to take the bias that they have and and look past it and look around it. Um, and she does that by bringing them into um, a museum in New York City, like an art museum in New York City, and and they learn about their own biases and and how to counter them and how to really react to what's actually happening rather than what they assume is happening by looking at art. And it's the coolest, coolest, coolest thing. Um, and I, you know, I think it's so important for parents to to recognize that oftentimes we we don't initially see what's actually there. Instead, we're seeing what we expect to see or what we want to see. And um, you know, that's when you talk about Asia, you talk about uh, uh, countering implicit bias. I feel like that is a big part of that, right? Yeah, that's exactly. And that sounds like. That's awesome work that she's doing. Oh like, my that gosh, is, it's amazing. That should be like the first year of learning how to be a police officer or anyone who has more power around other people. Exactly. Um, and that's exactly what we're doing. And we're just doing it younger. And I'm grateful that she's doing that. Oh, I love that. I love, so I love that. I think that's what I want to end on. You know, you, you are teaching people to do exactly that, but just with younger people. I think that's really cool. Thank you so much, Asia Ray. It has been great having you on the show. It's been such a pleasure today. It's gone so quickly. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, you can find Asia at her website, which is booksforlittles.com. And Asia, at the beginning of this, we were talking about you're having something new coming out in March. Do you want to share quickly about that? Yeah, so I'm trying to get at least one big collection up each month. So right now we're focusing on black women in history, which is a, an in, important topic that everyone's excited about. So, so we've got actually, a ton I, of black women in history on our website right now. But next month in mid-March, we're going to come out with normalizing. Like I, I think I, I'm not sure if I discussed this, but normalizing books where um, in addition to validating and explicitly educational, the more most of the books you read, like at a ratio of like 12 to 1, should be normalizing books with diverse characters who have agency and control over their lives where their identities are not hinged on their gender and their race and their ability. So we're focusing on girls of color where it's not a book about black history and it's not a book about sexism. It's just a kick-ass girl doing her thing Mm -hmm. because she is an equal. And it's not just for girls, it's for boys and girls and gender non-binary kids. So they can see that girls have agency and power and they are equals. Um, And these are the kinds of books that we make sure to read most of um, these marginalized identities in roles that kids can connect with where they don't just exist, like their their existence isn't justified, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It does. It does. And that is, I'm glad that that's going to be out in March because this episode is going to air in late March. So. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. So that'll be perfect. So people yeah, will so still have a couple of If everyone of weeks joins to- and then join um, and sign up for the email list and then you guys get updates twice a month on whatever's coming out that's new. Oh, cool. Excellent. I think I'm going to go join it. Yeah, <laughs> um, and listeners, you can find me at weturnedoutok.com. Go there for free guides like the Handle Every Temper Tantrum Guide or to sign up for the free live classes that I teach. Currently, I'm doing one. I'm so excited about this one. I'm teaching one on the three secrets of happy parenting, which teaches how to make the time you spend with your kids like actually enjoyable time. So Ooh, if helpful. you're dreading time with your young child rather than enjoying it, come and take this class. You can find out about it at weturnedoutok.com slash secrets. Um, also at my website, you'll find this book that I wrote to give parents the tools to use in their toughest moments while raising young children. It's called Positive Discipline Ninja Tactics, and you can find it at weturnedoutok.com book. 
All the links to Asia and my stuff can be found in today's show notes. And finally, I have a special thanks for our producer, the man whose favorite time of day when our teens were young was very often story time, the 20-time winner of the Husband of the Year Award, Benjamin Culp. Thank you again so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to We Turned Out Okay. I want to date to Australia. Find us on the web at weturnedoutok.com where you'll find show notes and more. What do you call cheese that's not yours? Nacho cheese. And remember, we only go around once. To be the best parents we can be, let's relax and enjoy the ride. I want to pee in the woods. Derp, 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 derp,